Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Tangredom episode 20. I'm your host, Iggy. And this is going to be one of those back-to-basics type of episodes. Uh, I'm going to do this with essentially no preparation or script. And uh, this one was prompted by a discussion under a Twitter post uh, captioned with the humble beginnings. And the post itself is a picture of Khabib Nurmagomedov, Conor McGregor, Chucky Olives and Francis Ngannou during their youth. Uh, it's called The Humble Beginnings. Uh, and it's one of those really like poverty porn type posts where the amount of hardship the fighter in question had to endure is the reason why that the fighter in question is great. And I mean, obviously, yes, these people must be praised for being able to uh, just uh, leave the unfortunate circumstances and uh, break through the unfortunate circumstances they have found themselves in through no fault of their own, because this is just the world we live in. But this whole idea of um, poverty and hardship, building character and creating all-time generational talents is a very common in MMA. And we've discussed this idea fairly in depth during our discussion panel entitled... Defining Toughness in Combat Sports, featuring Zachary Makovsky at Gallo and Haxerized, and we talked about uh, th this whole idea fairly in depth, and if you wish to hear our thoughts, I would recommend you go back and listen to that, but to just to quickly recap my views on the whole thing, uh, I believe in uh, the current state of the world, in the current status quo as it stands, it's very common to justify the amount of inequality and hardship endured by people who are less well-off than, uh, say, the middle class or the upper middle class or, indeed, the rich, uh, rich people. Rich people. I'm sorry. I'm recording this, like, essentially, like, 30 minutes after waking up. It's currently, like, 11, 11.30 a.m. for me. So, and I'm doing this with no preparation, so you, you'd have to bear with me. But overall, I think there's a significant amount of survivorship bias uh, in how people approach questions like this. Uh, and survivorship bias, to just uh, to quickly explain what I'm talking about. Have you seen that picture of the, the plane with uh, like red dots showcasing the places where the plane got riddled with bullets? It's a World War II plane. And uh, it's a diagram of a plane, and uh, and there's like tons of uh, tiny little red dots where the bullets hit. Just Google survivorship bias; you'll you'll find it very quickly. But overall, uh, to quickly recap, during World War Two, um, uh, the U.S. Army evaluated the planes that uh, managed to limp back to base that survived enemy fire and figured, oh, the places that got hit the most should be uh, armoured more robustly. This is where we have to put additional armour. And uh, a statistician called Abraham Wald uh, evaluated this whole thing and figured there's a significant amount of survivorship bias involved in the assessment uh, performed by the US military. So... Uh, him and the statistical research group at Columbia University examined the damage and uh, recommended adding armor to the areas that showed the least damage based on their own analysis. So the reasoning is thus. So like, yes, the military considered uh, the whole thing and figured like, yeah, it makes sense to armor the things that get hit the most, but they only considered the aircraft that had survived their missions. Still with me, right? So, any bombers that had been shot down or otherwise lost had logically also been rendered unavailable for assessment. What that means is the planes got shot down and the military had no avenue to get them back for assessment. Makes sense, right? You're not gonna... You're not gonna start an entire mission and you're not going to ask people to risk their lives. You're not going to ask military personnel to risk their lives to retrieve uh, planes that had been ruined by enemy fire. 
and so the bullet holes in the returning aircraft represented areas where a bomber could take damage and still fly well enough to return to safety. And so Walt proposed that the military reinforce areas where the returning aircraft were unscathed. Making a point that planes that got hit in the areas that were unscathed in the returning airplanes were lost. Makes sense, right? Naturally, like, there's uh, a ton of... Like, if you look at the picture, the picture depicts the plane getting hit at the very tips of, of its wings, closer to the fuselage, which uh, doesn't really play a role in the flying. I mean, it sure, I'm sure it does. A correct shape of the fuselage will determine how well your plane will fly, but it doesn't affect the, the actual function of flying. And it got hit at the very tips of the tail of the plane. So it can get hit in those areas and then still limp back to base. But if it, get hit, if it gets hit anywhere else, either the engines or the nose or the, tip or the portion of the wings that are in the middle between the fuselage and the tips are going to be shot down. And so it's been a seminal work and that's where, that's when planes, uh, that, that's when the survivability of allied, flame, uh, allied planes essentially skyrocketed. Another, an, another example was the helmet, was uh, the Brody helmet, the military helmet of uh, the British military. There was a dramatic rise in field hospital admissions for severe head injury. And so the army thought that Maybe we should re redesign the helmet. And then a statistician looked at the helmet and figured, oh, soldiers who usually got killed by shrapnel to the head were now surviving the same hits and thus made it to a field hospital, even though they got, you know, fucked up. But they still lived. So this is where the two, the sort of like, transfer this to a real-life example, to an example that is closer to, I guess, that, that would hit closer to home. The idea that uh, a fighter who went through poverty and went through immense hardship is, uh, is the ideal fighter. Like, poverty and suffering are good and make you tough, actually. This is, this is the sentiment that we're talking about here. And this is a sentiment I disagree with immensely. I disagree with it vehemently. Like, what makes one person strive for greatness often breaks dozens of others. And who's to say that those dozens wouldn't be as good if they lived somewhere else that's not a shithole or didn't have to live through the stuff they went through? Like, the world is not a zero-sum game. If more people live well the better off the rest are. And that affects everything. Everything, especially sports. This whole thing leads to a situation where imagine you see an immensely gifted kid abandoning a career pursuit that could turn him or, or, turn him or her into a sports icon because they need to fucking eat. Imagine you see that person and then tell them, well, guess you just didn't want it bad enough, kiddo. And it's very... It happens very often. It's very widespread. It happens all the time. This is the world we live in. You can have all the talent in the world and still not be able to pursue your true calling simply because you were born in a place where you just can't do it. Life itself prevents you from doing it. More often than not, your, surrounding, um, more often than not, your surroundings struggle against you harder than you can struggle against your surroundings. This life breaks the strongest wills and crushes the smallest hopes. And uh, in my opinion, anyone who says misery builds character simply hasn't experienced enough misery yet. But uh, but back to the topic itself, the actual topic at hand. Uh, I've said many times that uh, Habib Nurmagomedov grew up essentially as a princeling. 
he's uh, he's uh, he grew up very privileged compared to his immediate peers because uh, when you look at his background his uh, coach was uh, uh, Abdul Manap Nurmagomedov was one of the most respected coaches uh, one, of, one of the most respected coaches in his region and uh, Habib didn't really live a life without adversity, and he had to work very hard to become the best lightweight, uh, the best lightweight in history, and had to train very hard. And uh, the training that he received turned him into a very hard man. But he received that training precisely because of the connections that his uh, father had. And yes. You can argue that the privileged the privilege only extended to his training situation and not his life situation because yes he lived uh, in uh, some village in a poor republic of Russia he lived in Dagestan in the 90s when Russia had, uh, had was essentially like nearing collapse because of uh, its economic policy and uh, US interference the USSR dissolved and Russia was uh, in a very bad shape during those days, and uh, Caucasus endured a tremendous amount of hardship because of war, uh, economic collapse, and all, the, uh, and all that other stuff. And so people put their kids into sports, so they didn't turn to militant Islam. That is true. That is correct. And the counter-argument I received from uh, the person in question, I won't name them, because I don't want them to get harassed over this, uh, over this view. It's uh, still a lot better than uh, some of the sentiments expressed by MMA fans who know nothing about uh, Eastern Europe or Caucasus or Russia in general, or like the post-Soviet bloc overall. But still, it's a bit off the mark, I I'd say. Like, yeah, the Nurmagomedovs were the richest family in the village, but uh, Habib was not privileged compared to the global situation. And this is like, this is kind of a flawed framing, I, I think, but I'll get into it uh, in due time. Like, uh, this argument downplays the importance of having the right connections in the world of 90s Russia. And I'm not going to recap the whole history of 90s Russia and the whole build-up to the collapse of the Soviet Union because it would take an entire history lecture. So, but the crux of it is that civilization didn't collapse in Russia. It was, it was bad, but it wasn't the apocalypse. Massive inequality. There was massive inequality, yes. The oligarchy, that, that's when the Russian oligarchy really sprung up in its modern form as we know it. 99% uh, of Russia's wealth belonged to the 1% of uh, the Russian populace. Uh, you could argue that it's uh, historically been the case all around the world and in Russia, but either way, massive inequality meant that you've had the right connections. You gained access to things that would put you above what you might consider globally privileged. Sounds strange, but it makes sense. It would make sense in a moment. Like, the ruling class, they lived essentially like kings. And those close to the ruling class were able to secure things someone from the upper middle class in America might not be able to get access to. Still with me, right? Consider this. You are an upper middle class uh, professional living in America. Could you go to the mayor, mayor's office cut a deal with him, and he will then proceed to give you bodyguards for free, training facilities for free, well, may, well ostensibly for free, perhaps he, he, will, he, would, uh, he would expect some, sort of, some form of payment from, payment from you still, like, so like a favor or something else, but either way. So, you receive audiences with the local government, training opportunities, financial and physical protection. That's pretty unheard of in America, is it? Because even though the wealth divide is still immense, uh, the overall cultural sensibilities do not really allow for that to happen. 
And as such, Habib wasn't really sheltered the same way a homeschooled kid in Western Europe, for example, was sheltered. But he was protected from the most destructive trends of the, his immediate surroundings, while receiving the best education... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm a mess this morning. <laughs> but he received uh, the best education and training money and connections could buy at the time. And it wasn't good training and education compared to the squalor of the 90s Russia. It was good training and education full stop by anyone's standards. And overall, it's a very myopic and Western-centric view to pretend Russia in general and its republics in particular are, in essence, wilderness. It's very common amongst MMA fans to consider the... to to talk about fighters from the post-Soviet bloc like they're, uh, they're some kind of like... like the return of the hunter-gatherer. They're the ideal male, according to Tyler Durden or whatever. Like, Pyotr Jan... Pyotr Jan grew up in Siberian wilderness, lived in a cave and ate rainworms until he turned three years old and was able to hunt wild boar. Like, he's some kind of, like... Like, like Habib grew up in the woods with no clothes and only ate... only stained himself by eating wolverines, as, <laughs> as a friend of the website Simon Amorim had said. And yes, it's like, it's a very common imagery. It's a, it's a very common trope to bring up uh, Habib wrestling bears. Well, first of all, it was a baby bear, most likely from a local circus or from a local wildlife preserve. Um, and knowing the sensibilities of the elite at the time, probably drugged, perhaps even declawed. I'm, I'm not, I don't know for sure, but uh, that seems likely. But if, if that's not the case, then yeah, cool. Still animal abuse. <laughs> Uh, either way, uh, Russian fighters aren't really these uh, weird alien wild men from, that are a throwback to the Neolithic era, that possess certain traits that bring them closer to uh, Neanderthals and uh, Cro-Magnons, as opposed to the modern men, the modern Western men. It's a very myopic, once again, and... Uh, it's it's once again it's a very westernized and europe centric view of things russia isn't some kind of like it's not a wasteland all right we have infrastructure the soviet infrastructure was powerful enough to leave uh, to leave us with institutions that produce great athletes to the, to, to this day yes the people in question are usually very hard men they're, they're tough bastards but the training they received, it's not the type of... Tra it's, they, weren't, they didn't grow up like Spartans. Like Spartans, uh, according to Frank Miller, at least. They didn't steal to survive, and they weren't beating with sticks every day. They drilled. They drilled in great, well-equipped training facilities, under great coaches who knew their stuff, because the Soviet system imbued... Russia to such an extent that we, even after the collapse of the 90s, we're, st we're still able to produce great fighters and st still able to produce great athletes in general. It's about access to great training, alright? And America is very weird. We talked about this a lot, but America is very weird in the sense that it has this quasi-social Darwinism approach to training. Everyone trains super hard. Everyone trains uh, without, like, w with no mercy for themselves. Just uh, uh, no sympathy to the hardships that the athletes endure. They just go hard every day and the coaches give them no breaks. And uh, only the most specialist fighters... Uh, only the most specialist... Fighters and athletes are able to make it to the top. The the weak get weeded out. And uh, the, a frequent, um, a common counter-argument, my, my most favorite counter-argument is always, what if, how many athletes burn out through no fault of their own simply because their bodies break down? Or because uh, the family situation doesn't allow them to continue training because... They have to provide for their families and uh, all that other stuff. All those extraneous, out-of-context, quote-unquote, factors. 
Not everything is about hard work, and I think many combat sports aficionados have learned about the Soviet training system and uh, and uh, frequently talk about how oh the Soviet system was so much more intelligent and uh, was able to save their athletes from premature burnout. I mean, they still worked hard as fuck. They still redlined themselves very frequently, but it was much more scientific. It it wasn't just this... Um, and I'm not trashing the American training system here. It still produced plenty of great athletes, so they must be doing something... Uh, they must be doing something right. It's not just all meathead science. It's not just all bro science, but... Just it's it's kind of an undeniable fact that uh, constantly redlining your athletes to, to until they their bodies can't take the beating anymore is uh, not a very ideal system. Well, it's just very uh, emblematic of how I suppose the Western capitalist system approaches things. It's uh, and how like the, 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 the a very illustrative example is the hustle culture. Uh, people who idolize the rich and the rich lifestyle and uh, th and make very questionable financial decisions to become wealthy. And most of them don't become wealthy at all. And those lucky few who become wealthy continue to propagate the whole idea of hustle culture and that they've worked hard to get where they are. I'm sure some of them did, like 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0 5% percent <laughs> of uh, each uh, hustler but still it's uh, it's just very weird uh, and uh, to to explain this whole thing we, we would have to get into the whole soci sociology angle of uh, economics uh, economics and uh, I don't really have the time to do it and uh, nor do I really want to perhaps later but to get back to, but to, well, now that we've established the, I guess, the westernized view of things, we can talk about the globally privileged argument. Once again, it's a very myopic and western-centric view to pretend Russia in general and the republics in particular are innocent wilderness, and globally privileged is flawed framing. Like, how do you quantify that? Like, how? Very obviously, the argument stems in the idea that Globally, the rest of the world is rich and well-off. Everyone is like lives according to the Western standards of living. And it's just blatantly not true. Yes, Asian countries are immensely wealthy, but are they westernized in, in the sense that it's the Western system that brought them up to this level? It's like it's the result of the Western influence. Uh... I'm sure you could argue about this in circles all day, but plenty of people in Asia still live in squalor. Wealth is not as widespread as you would think. Wealth is not the standard. It's not the global standard of living. If you look at the numbers, if you look at the distribution of wealth across the world, it's not going to be even. I think it, we can all agree, I think, uh, at the very least, the listeners of this podcast can agree that the wealthy possess the most resources in the world. So back to my initial argument. So growing up working class in the projects in the UK or in a tiny Midwestern town to poor parents isn't pretty no matter how you look at it. A farmer living in South China isn't going to be a, is, is going to be more wealthy as a farmer compared to a farmer in northern China simply due to climate. But those farmers aren't going to be wealthy compared to the upper middle class professionals living somewhere in Beijing, for example. And the upper middle class Chinese professionals won't have access to the same resources that someone 
living in North America, the same upper middle class pro professional living in North America will have, simply because of the political system. But due to the political system, the upper middle class professional living in China may have access to certain different things based on their connections. And so privilege and poverty is not a linear sliding scale where growing up in certain countries is a guarantee that you will be more privileged and pampered than someone from Asia or the Middle East or the Caribbean. Consider the wealth inequality in the Middle East, somewhere in, say, the United Arab Emirates. Do you think everyone lives in uh, skyscrapers over there? Do you think everyone lives in high-rises? in uh, the United Arab Emirates. Of course not. Or, to bring up examples from my own personal experience, I grew up in some village in a poor republic in Russia. And uh, Buretia burned... Uh, Buretia had to experience much of the same problems that all the republics across Russia had to experience during the 90s. The economic collapse was universal across, across Russia. Perhaps not as, uh, perhaps not as uh, acutely felt in Saint, uh, in cities like uh, Saint Petersburg or Moscow, but the urban poor were very poor compared to the poor people living uh, living in uh, national republics, places like Buretia or Dagestan or uh, Bashkiria or any other places. Because the urban poor frequently did not have access to things like farms. They didn't have farms, they didn't have duchess, where they could uh, grow their own food or in gardens. But still, they've had uh, a little bit more money. They've had access to things that they could um, buy in uh, the cities. It was very bad. They couldn't buy many things, but they could still buy more things that, than people in Buretia could buy, but people in Buretia also had farms, and thus they didn't have to spend as much money on food. Who is more privileged between them? Hard to say, right? It's hard to quantify. So, I grew up as a second-class citizen in a very racist country, and everywhere I go, I am treated as a, as a foreigner. If I, The further west I go in Russia the more as a foreigner I get treated. I phrased it very weirdly, I sound like Yoda, but you get the idea. If I travel west, the amount of races, uh, racism I have to experience grows exponentially. And back in Buretia, I still have to... Uh, I am still subject to that racism, and I'm, and I'm subject to a lot of internalized racism as well, because my culture was essentially destroyed by, the, by Russian colonialism during the course of centuries. I do not have access to some of the things that someone in my financial situation, my relative financial situation, might, ha might have somewhere in, uh, in the Midwest. But they still have to deal with the side effects of the... either the intended effects or the side effects of uh, the American political system and economic system. And uh, someone, let's say, living in the favelas. Did I have to deal with the inescapable squalor of the favelas? Or the violence and hopelessness of a densely populated ghetto somewhere in the United States? Of course not. Did I experience my fair share of hardship growing up? Yes. My mother makes uh, essentially the same amount of money I make working for the fight side full time. And she works two jobs. She's an educated researcher, and she makes about about four hundred and fifty, maybe five hundred bucks per month. And uh, she does not really that. I guess you could say globally, yes, she's less privileged than uh, an educated researcher somewhere in Western Europe. But. She is still privileged compared to someone who doesn't have education and doesn't work as a researcher over here, in Buretia, in Russia. 
And so the people I've just described, people living in the favelas or people living uh, in ghettos, they had to go through things that are much more immediately threatening and demoralizing. Does that make me privileged in comparison to them in that respect? Of course it does. Are we more or less privileged than each other, though, taking all other factors into account? Given that my culture has essentially been destroyed by Russian colonialism, and I'm considered a second-class citizen everywhere I go, as Russia grows more authoritarian by the minute, I do not have the same level of freedom of expression that is allowed to someone who is poor but lives in Western Europe. It's a hard topic to examine in depth on Twitter and social media, and uh, I guess you could examine it in a podcast, but since I, I'm just going a bit off the cuff here, uh, it's, uh, I, I don't really have the necessary nuanced and well-thought-out statements to put out, perhaps in the future, but uh, as a, the TLDR, I guess, as follows. Privilege and hardship are not easily quantified. And comparing privilege isn't as simple as saying that Taiwan is a good place to live and Mongolia is an empty step. It's so much more complicated than that. You can't look at, uh, say, Indonesia and say that Indonesia is objectively a worse place than Russia. Because there's plenty of uh, people who, who are, yes, both countries share a great deal in common in uh, the economical sense, in the financial sense, in that there's tons of people who live below the poverty line. And there's plenty of social, uh, social tensions between classes in that country as well. But that's a universal fact of our world, really. And, for example, they don't have to deal with former KGB men trying to stifle the freedoms of their own citizens. Or, like, further the... I mean, I guess the upper, upper classes always seek to increase the economic inequality because that's just the status quo and that's what benefits them. They are incentivized to continue that agenda of acquiring more and more wealth at the expense of everyone else, because they still think that the world is a zero-sum game. But uh, Indonesia faces completely different issues, is my point. Which place is more or, uh, which place is more or less privileged than the other? I mean, sure, there are situations where you can absolutely say that if a person grew up in a particular place, in a particular moment in time, then they've objectively had to endure destructive and horrible things not many other people on earth will ever have to go through. But at that stage, we're approaching a point of no return, where all civilization breaks down due to the most terrible and disruptive factors known to humanity. Things such as war, outside interference from global powers, that leads to war or any number of other horrible things, and most of them, incidentally, also have to do with war. And even then, it's not a sure thing, because a war is a war is a war. Caucasus received massive amounts of financial investment by the Russian government to ensure its loyalty. Did Afghanistan or Iraq receive anything remotely similar? Well, did it? Did East Timor? Did Somalia? Did Myanmar? Is East Timor more or less privileged than Afghanistan. Does it really matter in the end? Does it matter who is more or less privileged in the world? You can talk about humble beginnings all you want. You can talk about it all you want, but you have to bear in mind that, once again, the poverty, uh, fucking, fucking, poverty and privilege, or porridge, <laughs> is not a sliding scale, it's not just directly comparable, like, yes, Conor McGregor's, uh, Conor McGregor's uh, parents were fairly well off compared to, to Francis and Gano's parents, but 
he's had to go through certain things that also left a mark on him. Or that he had to go on the dole to survive. Which is, uh, which is for some reason, considered to be a bad thing. Like, governmental subsidies historically have proven to be very effective in combating poverty and encouraging economic growth. Like, uh, back during the Roman era, during the, the Roman imperial era, there was a reform that uh, essentially substituted a, a grain dole. Grain was given out to uh, to farmers, uh, so they don't have, to, so they wouldn't have to spend money on food, and as such, they were able to buy things that they wouldn't be able to buy if they had to spend that money on on grain, and that encouraged economic growth all across the empire. I mean, uh, just just a funny, just a fun historical factoid for you to ponder on, but. I mean, of the, of the four mentioned, of the four people depicted in the picture that is posted, uh, called the humble beginnings, I would say that Jackie Olives and uh, Francis and Gano are the way less privileged than uh, Conor McGregor or Khabib Nurmagomedov, and Francis and Gano had it the worst. Does it devalue the hardships that uh, both Khabib Nurmagomedov and Conor McGregor had to endure? No. No, it doesn't. Habib didn't grow up in a... Like, Habib grew up in a dangerous environment. That is a fact. But because he grew up in a family that had the right amount of connections, the right connections, he had powerful... His family had powerful friends, powerful backing, security, and it ensured that he would be well off in the future. And yes, he poured a, a tremendous amount of effort into making the most of his advantages. But. But. The overall point is not who is the most privileged out of the four. The overall point is not that privilege is bad. Or, like, having resources is bad. Having advantages is bad. This, the co combat sports themselves are inherently unfair. Everyone will have some sort of advantage over the other competitor. Someone will have an immortal chin. Someone will have an endless gas tank. Someone will have one-punch knockout power. Someone will, have just, someone will just be overall much more athletic much more physically gifted, but the other person may be more skillful. It's not just a linear scale of who is better. Nothing ever is. Broadly speaking, yes, you can't just put someone in like in, in like tiers, like F tier and then at the top is S tier and there's like uh, and uh, the groups are very varied and just bunched together based on certain like abstract metrics. But it doesn't reflect the actual reality of things. It, uh, it, it makes sense, but it doesn't really go into great depth regarding the discrepancies between those competitors or their training situations or their financial situations or whatever. Uh, I guess this podcast is just me venting uh, about the lack of nuance in... Uh, uh, in the common MMA discourse and in social media discourse in general, it's just—I uh, I guess it's—it's kind of became my shtick. It's kind of my bit that I uh, that I pull out uh, from episode to episode. It's just that I think I think to to come up with some sort of conclusion and overall point for this whole thing is that this fetishism of poverty needs to stop and moreover um, and also this fetishism of uh, less well-off places needs to stop it's not a good thing fetishism of russia also has to stop because russia is not a good place it's not a good place and the fact that it's not a good place doesn't really contribute much of, uh, like 
in the grand scheme of things, a country being bad, less financially well-off than other countries, doesn't really bring any net positives. It may produce some tremendously gifted people, but it would have produced them either way, regardless, even if they had access to many different opportunities. And the most important thing, I think, in my opinion, the most important thing is that, is it really worth it to trade, even if it's a, like, even if it's a trade, even if it's a zero-sum game of uh, poverty-stricken places breeding incredible people? Does it really warrant all the suffering that economic and political situation bring? To everyone else. Are you willing to make that trade? And if you are. If you are willing to make that trade for your own entertainment. Perhaps you should evaluate. Uh, your own views. Perhaps you should reevaluate. Your own worldview and how you view things. how you view the rest of the world. People's lives aren't a playground. People's lives frequently make for great stories, but everyone has a potential to have a great story, provided they live well and make the right decisions, or get lucky. There's a myriad of different factors that goes into the making of one's life. Once again, I grew up in some village in the poor Republic of Russia. Do I think that I would be the same person if I grew up in a, a place that is more well-off or had access to more privileges and resources and finances? Perhaps. Perhaps, yes. That is very possible. Uh... Would I enjoy having those resources or finances growing up? Of course, naturally. Would I trade the current life that I lead, the current existence that I lead, for... If I were able to go back and live a different life, would I do so? I'm not sure. I don't think so. Because, yes, while hardship is uh, overall, like, you know, bad, it does lead to certain traits of character that you wouldn't develop otherwise, but still. Is it worth the suffering? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Depending on the person, if you ask the fighters in question, would they trade what they have right now to lead a happier existence with uh, less hardship. I also don't know. Some perhaps would, some perhaps won't. Doesn't really matter in the end, it's their choice. For each person that, uh, that is glad that they... I mean, every person cherishes... Uh, every person develops self-worth. Self-worth is necessary to be able to live, uh, to, to be able to maintain good mental health. And uh, enduring hardship is uh, one of those things that many people reframe as a good thing because they were able to become the person they are right now. They're not going to say, well, yes, uh, I would very much like to be an upper-class twit that... Uh, that didn't live, that didn't lift anything heavier than a pencil throughout their entire life. No one would do that. That's just because that that's just how humans are. But that doesn't mean we have to glorify those hardships as well. It doesn't mean if you are well off, and you for some reason envy the people who are less well off because they're closer to nature, closer to. 
that they, they are more authentic or whatever. Please shut up. <laughs> That's the least I could ask of you. Just uh, st stop typing. <laughs> stop posting. Log off. And we kind of, just overall, uh, to bring this whole thing to a conclusion, overall I think we need to move away from poverty porn and poverty fetishism. And uh, I've said this many times before, and I've said this multiple times during the course of this podcast, but this point needs to be hammered home, it seems, because this, uh, this uh, discourse just uh, never ends. Every time a fighter from a from a, an impoverished background or a fighter with a tragic backstory come, bursts into the scene, into the combat sports scene, everyone just hops on and just uh, turns them into this uh, this uh, re re return to monkey, I guess. <laughs> and it's just dumb. Once again, for every character that Hardship was able to build, for every character that was enhanced by misery, there's hundreds of other people whose character and soul were ruined by that very same Hardship. Not everyone is the same, is my point. Not every place is the same, not every life is the same. And this fetishism, this fetishization of uh, uh, lower class backgrounds leads to the money issues that fighters face all the time. The idea that fighters' lives are being changed by the UFC and by the meager amount they get paid compared to other athletes. Um, like uh, Everyone keeps saying that it's a good thing because, uh, because, because uh, they... they, they led uh, extremely hard lives prior to becoming MMA fighters and the amount of money they get paid changes their lives and all that jazz. It could be better. It's okay to, wa to want better things. It's okay to wish for improvement everywhere. It's how we grew. Doesn't... Wealth creation doesn't impede growth. That's my entire point. <sighs> Alright. I think you get the idea. I think I said enough on the topic. If, I, I'm sure the fact that uh, I've done this off the cuff and didn't really like list sources or whatever uh, and w w wasn't very diplomatic with my wording I will breed some Pretty dumb responses. But uh, what else is new? Alright. Uh, well. If you have any questions regarding what I've just said. Uh, please uh, feel free to join our Discord for $5 per month. <laughs> Create more wealth for me. Because I depend on the income. Um, that we receive on Patreon. I, I, I do highly I directly depend on the amount of money that we receive on Patreon so I would like to have more of it I don't think it speaks badly of my moral character to wish to improve my life <laughs> my financial situation <laughs> uh, uh, each question that I receive on uh, Discord on the Discord uh, provided it's interesting or the topic is interesting, uh, or it prompts me to come up with a more interesting topic uh, for a podcast, I will make sure to examine it in depth. I've examined uh, many questions like, the, like these on prior episodes of Tangredome. I frequently invite guests, for example, Connor Rebush. Um, we, uh, the, the discussion was prompted by a question from Discord patron Smash regarding uh, fighter personalities and how personalities affect uh, fighting styles go back and listen uh, please feel free to go back and listen to this episode to that episode and there was also an episode about honor and martial arts just uh, i'm very willing and open to suggestions and we've also me and fenu have also been working on 
a series of three rounders marathons. It's uh, we provide alternate commentary and just banter uh, over uh, some either less well known or forgotten fights or just plain uh, just cool fights, cool three rounders in general. From uh, the most recent episode was on light heavyweight. We managed to find very interesting and very cool fights at light heavyweight, and we've also recorded recently recorded an episode on heavyweight. Imagine that. It's going to be released uh, sometime next week, perhaps, or maybe this week. Um, it's currently processing. Uh, the files are very huge. I guess we should figure out how to compress them so they don't take as much time processing. And, and also... Uh, yeah, what else? Uh, oh, and uh, Taylor Higgins. Uh, Taylor Higgins of the fight site, our amateur boxing exp expert, has um, written a review, a very exhaustively detailed review of uh, amateur boxing at uh, Tokyo 2020 Olympics. It's, uh, it also serves as a full-on viewing guide. I highly recommend that you check it out. Plenty of good stuff happened during that tournament. Uh, check out the fight site. Check out our written works in general. Check out our Patreon for, for all the content that we've released over the years. Well, well over 300 pieces of content. Uh, just alternate commentaries, fight breakdowns, that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I, I dare say it's pretty good. Just three bucks per month and you gain access to everything. Five bucks per month you gain access to all that content in our Discord community. If you wish a direct line of communication with our staff and uh, other like-minded fight fans who enjoy in-depth discussions of uh, combat sports, Please join. And, yeah. This was a very rambly one. But, uh, once again, as I've stated in the beginning, it's kind of like a back-to-basics sort of ranty episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, this has been Tengri Dome episode 20. This was your host, Iggy. See you later.